Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for those pastors and teachers who are preparing sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm a discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Amy Peeler. Reverend Dr. Amy Peeler is a professor of New Testament and an associate rector, pastor at uh, her church in Wheaton, Illinois, where she uh, teaches uh, New Testament uh, there at Wheaton College. So as a both a professor and a pastor, she is uh, a perfect guest for this show and a dear old friend and uh, is semi-regular here on the show. So some longtime listeners uh, will recognize her voice and all of you will benefit from her insight. I'll uh, just mention that she has a brand new book that just came out called Women and the Gender of God, Women and the Gender of God. Great study focused especially on the incarnation and the encounter between God and Mary and the Annunciation and virgin conception and all that. It's just really, really cool. I haven't finished the book yet, but already I'm far enough through it to say I can recommend it uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, it's a really great piece of work. So check that out, Women and the Gender of God. Our text this week is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 14. If you find yourself enjoying the show today, press the share button on your podcast player app and you can pass this show along to others so that they might enjoy it as well. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text, find ways you can become a patron saint. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Amy. Okay, so we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Is that right? No, 8 through 14. I had 8 through 14. I had 8 as well. I don't know why I said 6. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. Would you be willing to read it for us? Glad to. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. So, Father, we are thankful that you've called us out of darkness and into the fellowship of the light. And we're thankful that as we are in this season, both the season of Lent moving towards Easter and just the the spring, as the light is dawning earlier and earlier, as we move toward the light, we ask that as we are grateful for the, the light that's already come, nevertheless, we ask for uh, the light to shine more fully, and for you to grant us the grace to walk in the light more faithfully. And we ask that that same light would illumine our minds and lips as we study this word, this hour, that all those listening in might be illumined, not by us, but by your spirit, illumined to see and to hear 
the voice of God. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, so you've, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you are working this text for a sermon coming up anyway. So That's exactly right. So I was thinking this morning, this just jumpstarts my preparation and I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> yeah. So where are you at? What are you noticing? What's stirring in you as you look at this text? Yeah. And I had not done any prep before. I'm doing a Yay. wedding uh, before Fresh that. Text. So exactly. Totally. As the name says, you know, immediately I was reading from the New Revised Standard Version and I stumbled over the words a little bit because they're striking. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord, you are light. So I'm jumping over here to check the Greek and it is a verb of being. You were skotos and now phos in the Lord. So I kind of expected maybe you were in the darkness and now you're in the light, but it's even deeper than that. Yeah, it almost sounded like an error too. My eyes immediately went to check. I'm like, wait, is that right? Yeah. Because there are so many, the in is the standard preposition there in Johannine literature, in other parts of Paul, even I think elsewhere in, in Ephesians, you'll get some in darkness, in light. So it is strange to kind of make it that stark, you know? Precisely. Yeah. And it just reflecting on the, the, I preached the last week of Epiphany. And of course, you deal with the themes of light. And that's where I ended up reflecting on the candles in our windows, and it was time to take them down. And that you have light themes here during Lent, that's going to hit people a little bit differently. And so probably we'll take the opportunity to reflect on the season and how as we're contemplating the darkness of our world, the darkness within us, how this text sounds. Yeah, you're right. It captures something slightly different. Mm. Yeah. The exposure of the light in verse 13. And anything that becomes visible is light. You get that same that same verb of being there. Yes. Everything that is being manifested is light. Not just in the light, is light. This is weird. What does it mean to actually be the light? Although then you immediately hear it and it's it hits our ears weird because it's in this Pauline epistle form. But of course, we have this straight on Jesus' lips when he says, you are the light you of the world, right? You are the light right? of the world, precisely. So I guess there's something about thinking through what it means to actually not just be in the light, but to be light itself and then to walk accordingly. It is that sense of being a reflector, right? The light doesn't arise within us. It is because as we are with the Lord, in the Lord, then we radiate out that light. We are both transformed and then we demonstrate it to the people around us. We are children of light, as the earlier part says. Yeah, that was an interesting phrase too, right? The To walk as children of light. Mm. And again, the I mean, you, I don't want to make a too big of a deal about the absence of the definitive article because they don't work the same way in Greek as they do in English. But it is an interesting phrase, children of light, because there is maybe some sense in which, again, I wouldn't want to do too much with this, but there's a sense in which, you know, Jesus is the light of the world and we are light, right? <laughs> Without the definitive article. Again, I, I don't think you could press that too hard exegetically, but there's at least something to that. Maybe. I don't know. How does that strike you? No, I think that's, there's always a sense in which 
our witnesses derivative from him, both his example, but then more basically by being a member of Christ, being in him. Because if we were to get disconnected from the source of light, we couldn't have light on our own. So that does seem right, that we're the lowercase L, not the uppercase light. <laughs> yeah, there it is. There it is. Yeah, because you are the light of the world. I am the light of the world. There's the synoptic and the Johannine <laughs> <That's correct. laughs> teachings next to each other there. So the now, well, and that, that the logic of that's all there in the, the middle phrase now in, in verse seven, excuse me, verse eight, the middle clause, yet now are light in Lord, right? In the Lord. So the in is kind of located in him. I think that's the key. Of course, then the metaphor gets mixed in verse nine, right? For the fruit of light. <laughs> exactly. That's really fun. Yes. <laughs> So that is a kind of strange. So then this phrase in 10. Yes. The discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. That is that almost verbatim what we have in Romans 12:2. Made me wonder cuz doesn't that sound familiar from that famous passage? I'm going to see if it's the same verb, but discerning It is. Yes. Is it the same verb? Discerning? Yep. It is. What is the will of God? Mhm. Yeah, what is the will of God? the good and the pleasing. Yep. Exactly. That's the same word. Yes. I've never really understood that phrase in Romans 12 too, either. Maybe you can help me with that a little bit. Like, I mean, we, we talk like this. It's just something we say, but you know, what is he getting at in the context here of discerning what's pleasing to the Lord? In the context in Romans or Ephesians or both? Well, you, you pick. I'm guessing Ephesians is where we want to land, but if Romans helps illumine that, then we can bring that in. But if it's a distraction, we can leave it aside. But how do you tend to kind of like, I mean, the language of discernment has kind of invaded kind of evangelical subculture. Everybody says it all the time, right? I'm discerning, right? <laughs> and it may or may not bear any relationship to the way that Paul's using it here. So I was wondering if you had any any thoughts on how to take that phrase in verse 10. That was probably the second thing that jumped out to me in our reading together. The The NRSV here has it as try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord, whereas the same term in Romans 12, 2 is translated as discern. The try to find out seems to put a bit more of the emphasis on the human effort. Uh, try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord that sets off lots of alarm bells, maybe because I work with young people, with college students of, oh, I'm kind of in this search for what God wants me to do and what pleases God. And I often hear myself saying in those situations, well, God has made it very clear what is pleasing to glorify God, to love God and love others. Like it's not a great mystery. And so in sermon preparation, this is definitely where I would want to do some word work with how Paul uses Dokumazo. I mean, the translations are discern, but also prove or test, uh, almost the sense of test out. Because he's just talked about fruit, uh, it makes me wonder if there's a comparison here. Test out, like we know general principles of what we should do to live, but in every particular situation, maybe there is a way in which need to test out, does this actually bear fruit? I find myself thinking about, you know, figuring out Christian ethic a lot of the time, <laughs> like because Christians can disagree, 
because in our particular lives, I'm writing on Hebrews 13 this week, which has some really practical instructions. And I'm like, how do you actually live this out well? So maybe there isn't a sense in which it's okay to have a period of like testing. Have I heard God's will correctly? Have I discerned what is pleasing? If so, then it will bear fruit of light. <laughs> it will demonstrate if I've interpreted in the correct way or not. What do you think about that? These are all, again, very fresh. (laughs) I don't think I've ever preached on this passage, so this is all new for me. Yeah, the connection to the previous verse is really helpful. The fruit of light in all, you know, goodness and justice and truth. I mean, the idea of testing, I don't know, like you say, with word work, I just went and checked real quick. And I mean, for our listeners, I'd say, I mean, in some ways... We talk like in classes or even on this, you know, in our teaching lives, but then even on this podcast, we tend to sometimes give the impression it's kind of like you do exegesis and interpret and then you start to apply. But actually, usually it's do some exegesis, start to do some interpretive stuff, right? have an angle on the sermon, and then you like go back and say, okay, then I need to go back now Uh because you don't want to do 25 word studies, you know, like sometimes- (laughs) Sometimes you got to, but but you also don't want to just start writing the sermon without really Mm -hmm. sitting with the text, right? So this would be one of these, do the deeper version of this word study, but this would be a really great, just doing a pitch for, as two Greek geeks, kind of a pitch to our listeners. This would be a great week if you do kind of talk about this discernment language. This is a good word study because it's only 22 uses in the New Testament. So it's a doable word study. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That was my little pitch. So 22 uses, and it is a lot of analyzing, discerning, proving, but approving and proving comes up a lot in Paul's writing in particular. Okay. But examine, I'm seeing, I'm just looking at multiple translations of different words, uh, examine yourselves, but then test comes up a lot, like you said, Mm -hmm. and this is that famous this is the exact verb you have in the famous line from First John four one: "Test the spirits." Right, right. Which some could be translated "discern the spirits," but there is a different word that's usually the more default word for discern. It's you know diachrisis, right? So judge between, d- discriminate between two different things. So this testing, I think, I think test or prove or examine. Actually, kind of like examine you know, really mull it over, really take a look. And I think the testing by the fruit is really nice, Amy. I did not see that. That really helps connect nine and 10 in the context because it tests it by what, you know, just like how I feel about it. Well, that's kind of exactly the opposite of what, and that's actually how it plays out in first John four there. It's about testing spirits and well, what do they say? Do they confess Jesus came in the flesh or not? Right. That's so you'll know them by their fruit, right? (laughs) If you know, these are written to communities of people that have really had major transformations of their lives, that's just going to be a process for them. I mean, I think this is what we see unfold in so many of the epistles. They're transformed by Christ, but then it is a learning process for them to know how to live in their cultures, to know what things they need to say no to, what new things they take up. That is not immediate knowledge, but it takes some tests and they don't always get it right. Hence the epistle writers have to correct them. No, you've not figured this out. Yeah. Oh, that's really nice. Cause then it gives a, you're, you're painting a picture of this testing, uh, this um, examining 
is linked to the kind of trial and error of how to actually play this out. Not just like, oh, you know, oh, you not only failed in that sin you committed, but you failed to think about it enough before you did it. You know, it's like, it's, hey, this is the testing. Notice the fruit. Notice where that resulted. And you're right. I mean, Paul, especially in Ephesians, there's a number of places back in chapter two when he's kind of like, you know, you're Gentiles in the flesh. Unless he's, maybe he's just in a mood, the author here. But if not, if we can discern the communities writing to you get it you get the the vibe that this is definitely a an intensely kind of pagan environment and that they're still kind of learning how to like not think and act in accordance with that kind of way of being which makes i mean ephesus is quite the center of i mean especially the information from acts and what went down there this is quite a center of idolatry and (laughs) fertility cult and all kinds of really pagan things (laughs) And actually, the more we're talking about this, John, I notice verse 11, you have fruit and unfruitful, fruit in nine and then unfruitful in 11. Yes. I actually think that's kind of maybe what is going on. So don't fellowship with those works that are unfruitful, those works of darkness, but rather expose them or reprove them, stand against them. So if they, if they've tested something out that's yielding bad fruit or no fruit at all, it's ah, carpoise, right? Then, hey, that's the things you need to back away from. Yeah. It's striking that it's not the bad fruit. Seems like the light and darkness metaphor is controlling the fruit metaphor. The natural way is to think of good fruit, bad fruit when you think of testing. But when you, with light and darkness, it's not like good light, bad light. It's light and absence of light, right? Darkness doesn't have substance you know, the way light does. So I, I wonder if the light's the dominant metaphor and then it's kind of fruit is kind of working according to the same kind of logic of substance and lack of maybe. Yes. Because you're right, unfruitful is a surprise actually, that phrasing. Unfruitful works of darkness, although it works really great. If there's no light, the plant can't grow, plant won't have any fruit. So the mixing of the metaphors actually kind of works. <laughs> unfruitful works of darkness. Great observation. Yeah. Let's take a quick break there and come back because I'm dying to talk about the last verse. And I'm so glad we didn't start there because I think that's all you and I would have talked about for an hour. That's uh, true. So let's, let's pause and come back to that after the break. Sounds good. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Amy Peeler, and we are looking at Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 8 through 14. So we've spent some time in these opening verses, you know, these verses, the light and dark theme. But then this moment that seems to come out of the blue and seems to be quoting something, but not clear what. So can we zoom in on that a little bit now? (laughs) Therefore, it says, I'll just quote it here. Therefore, it says, arise, O sleeper. And rise up, trying to get their two different verbs here, and rise up out from among the dead Mm. and will shine upon you the Messiah. So, I mean, every version of the Bible that I have out with me has either no footnote or where is this from? (laughs) Question mark. Because we don't know. Like, it seems to be he introduces it as a citation, right? Right. 
Or maybe not. It doesn't say it is written. <laughs> Precisely. This is the non, it's a non-typical Pauline citation introduction. It's very Hebrews. This is exactly how Hebrews does citation. You're right. Um, that is, that is where I'm thinking, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Paul wouldn't usually, how does Paul usually introduce his citations? No, you're correct. You said it. Gay Groptai. It is written. Ah, okay. That's typical for Paul. So that's the kind of first, wait, what's going on here? And then of course, no one can kind of exactly trace where this is coming from. I don't have commentaries in front of me, but what I would do, of course, is maybe you do have them sitting open, but I'd go and say, what has been the conversation? What portions of scripture is real scripture? Or maybe even are these Greco-Roman philosophical tropes that he's alluding to? I don't know, but that's where others had done the work before you. And so I would just take advantage of what they had already searched. Yeah. What verse is this again? Verse 18? Uh, no, verse 14, 514. 14, 14. I'm getting my numbers wrong today a lot. <laughs> I mean, this is going to be pretty dated, but it's something. This is Marcus Bart's Ephesians commentary, ah. which is from the 60s or 70s. But uh, I was just going to glance. Yeah, he doesn't have any citation of where it's coming from, but he's just kind of discussing it. Anyway, I might come back to it, but yeah, it's a weird one. I mean, the possibility that there's some textual variant that's no longer around, my first instinct would go there. You know what I mean? I would wonder, you know, like if something like this could have, you know, it's just been lost in the time, but I don't know. I'm just doing a search for some of the words here, Septuagint, and yeah. there is... um it's the passage that Matthew draws from, I think, for his part of the resurrection, the opening of the tombs. But it's Isaiah 26, 19. The dead shall rise, and those who are in the tomb shall be raised. Those who are on the earth shall rejoice. So any kind of resurrection themes might be present, but the joining of resurrection and shining, that's what I don't know if you have together anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. Or is this an example of a Christian hymn, right? right is it right. Christian communities who have composed this? It's just, do we have any, I mean, of course, the Pauline authorship of Ephesians is debated. We'll set that aside right. for now. But I'm trying to think of usually when Paul makes use of hymn language, he doesn't usually introduce it, right? With a kind right. of- Right, that's true. Right? He just kind of weaves it in appropriates it so that that does that's not an objection as much as a kind of complication you know therefore he says i mean i don't want to go out on it i don't want to get too wacky here but i mean <laughs> i was thinking the same thing when i mean this would be one of these things that you know an earlier era of kind of history of religions <laughs> would just say well maybe he's quoting some mystery some liturgy even non-christian liturgy mm-hmm because one possibility, of course, is, of course, it, I, I don't have much patience for those kind of approaches, in, except for the notion that surely Paul's using language around him, you know, but always is turning it to his own ends. It is possible that the quotation ends, you know, the original manuscripts wouldn't have like these lined That's true. quotes, Set right? Apart. Yeah, yeah. Could just be the first two lines, maybe. And then this kind of adding, hey, and the Christ will shine on you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. That could be. But that could be. it wouldn't really make any sense since it's the shining is what he's reaching for. It is really cool to have the two different words for resurrection right next to each other. That does not happen very often, does That's it? That's right. That's right. I don't think it does. 
a gay row and anestisme. Anestemi. Yeah, anestemi, right next to each other. And the two images for, you know, death, sleep, and, you know, the necron. I don't know. It's just like, it's all there, you know. It's like, boy, yeah, I wish I knew where you're getting this from, Paul, because it's like, it is on point. <laughs> well, I, I often, in kind of working with Israel scriptures in the new, I, I feel like I always am interested in the background question, like, where is this coming from? What is the echo? What's the wider context? As I've been working on a commentary, my editor has frequently said to me, but don't lose attention on what's going on in the passage. And I think that's a good word. And so I'm struck here that he's had this motif of you've been, you're no longer darkness, you're light, but you really need to expose and not go back and participate in the works of darkness. So the theme of being asleep it's kind of interesting because sleep, of course, is like a neighbor of death, right? We, we think about a loss of consciousness. He's like, you're no longer in the darkness. You're, you've been brought to life, but don't fall asleep. And so those themes of death and sleep rise up and Christ still wants to shine on you. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. You don't have the light in of yourself, but you need to be attentive to the light of Christ so that you can reflect it. So. I probably, if I couldn't discover a really good source for a, the background of this material or from where it has come, I would then try to see, well, what is Paul doing with it? Like, how does it tie up this passage? Yeah, no, that's really great. That's a great warning against the, hey, where's this from? It's kind of not an end in itself anyway. It's all about interpreting the text in the in the end. So, I mean, the the detective in us that wants to go find it, you know. Yeah, and of course, he's probably quoting from memory. Most of when he quotes from memory, they're not exactly what you find in the Septuagint anyway. Usually there's either textual variants or his own memory. And this one might just be between textual variants and maybe a little bit off in the memory, which you can't find it, you know, but all the more to just say, okay, well, what's it trying to say? And actually bringing in the resurrection language, which is not obvious without this citation that I feel oh, like that's, that's one of the most point. important contributions that it makes. Because yeah, excellent. You know, if you were to say, what are our metaphors or uh, metaphors, not my favorite way to put it. What are our language sets or something like that? Tropes. How's that? Tropes. Mm. So the tropes we have so far, the big one being light and dark. Mm -hmm. And then a subordinate one that we discussed was fruit and unfruit. Then a new trope then gets introduced here, which is sort of sleep and rising. Right set in parallel with death and yes. arising. Yes. <laughs> Not that those are two different words. Rising and unrising is, you know, close enough to capture there's two different words here. Although the word here, agero, it would be used for waking somebody up. It's the word that the disciples use when the when Jesus is asleep in the boat. <laughs> so like I think agere, you know, get up. So now we've got at least three tropes going at once. And it all just kind of invites all kinds of questions about, okay, there's the light that already shined in Christ's resurrection as we're moving towards Easter here. I mean, I imagine the first time a Christian quoted whatever's being quoted here, they were thinking of what was going to happen at the end, right? The final resurrection. Yes. Right? Rise, O sleeper, right? This is, sounds like something. Totally. This is where I was saying earlier, like, I don't want to get too wacky, but. I mentioned the history of religions thing. The other thing to get wacky is like, I mean, it could be translated. He says, not it says. That's correct. Is this some sort of prophetic, like 
vision of what Christ is going to say when he calls, wakes us up at the end. I don't, you know, I mean, again, I don't want to get too spooky, but it's not impossible. <laughs> no, exactly. Keeping eschatology in focus here. That's the hope that we have. This is the thing he's going to say to us. Yeah. And because yeah. the whole point then, of course, the whole book of Ephesians is built around this. All that stuff that's at the end is actually relevant now. Exactly. You know, we're already seated in those heavenly places. Live accordingly. Live in accordance with your future because from God's point of view, it's already present would be one way of kind of summarizing one of the contributions Ephesians makes. So I don't know how any of that strikes you if it sounds like it's that it adds a layer that we might not have otherwise. Because up until verse 14a, it's kind of like, well, the light's there and you got to live in it. And then 14b kind of introduces a, a little bit of a future expectation, perhaps. Yeah. No, I think, I think that is correct. It's like the underpinning of light. I mean, life and death is there with the darkness scene, but it's really not explicit until the end. I'm just trying to imagine then how it ties back in with like 11 through 13. Uh, we had discussed discerning what is pleasing, taking no part in the unfruitful work, but exposing them. And so. What is this call? I mean, it seems like he's worried about this community uh, continuing to participate in darkness. And so they need to fully wake up. I'm struck. I, you know, I think I find it a little confusing. Expose the works of darkness. But then the next verse, for it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. How can you uh, expose yeah. with not mentioning it? Uh, have you reflected on that before? That seems like a wrinkle. Yeah, expose. What's the verb there? That's an 11. Yes. Eklegko. So reprove, speak against. This is rebuke, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. I wonder if, I mean, the context is informing that translation decision and other translations make that choice. But because in 13, is it, yeah, it's there too. I mean, the context of light does bring out that notion of exposure, but it wouldn't be my like initial hunch of how to translate it. It just sounds like rebuke is just sounds so confusing. But then again, sometimes leaving it weird helps you notice something. Here's an old fashioned translation, reprove, which is yeah. just interesting as it rhymes with the prove of, of, the, of the other word that we were exactly. saying, right? This is the kind of negative version. Yeah. You test and find that something's good. This is to kind of convict or rebuke to demonstrate that something is not. I don't know. That's a tricky one. I don't love expose. I don't love it. Given what you pointed out, you know, shameful to even talk about them. Yeah. You need to speak against them. It's the same root word, right? That's In right. verse 12, right? Yeah. 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 So to speak against, I guess, would be the, the variant here. So it does seem to be like a... If there are things going on, I can totally imagine a community situation in which some of the community members have like fully let go of practices from their idolatrous life. Some are still participating in them. And it would be awfully tempting to kind of gossip about, oh, did you know so-and-so is still doing? Maybe that's the speaking about. And what is yeah. actually the correct way is not to gossip about it because it's, you know, kind of salacious things to talk about. But to speak openly about it, actually, to reprove it, that may help to speak against, not behind their back talking about it, but say to them directly, this is not good for you. 
And that would maybe help you get to the Lego connection. Yes, that's very good. Let's try riffing off that exact claim. If you run it with rebuke, it actually works. The, the sentences work. They're just, it's just weird. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead rebuke them for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is rebuked by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. I mean, I don't know. Cause then it, it almost gives the hope because when you say it, when you substitute in expose again, letting the the trope control the verb translation, mm. then you get the idea that that what's being it's bringing it into the light, and then that shows it, which is a nice imagery. But the hope of thirteen can get lost, right? Yeah. When anything is rebuked by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. It's sort of saying it's hope. It's like once it's brought into the open, it gets transformed. Now it's light. Exactly, exactly. And then that loops back right to eight. You are light. Yeah, not become light. You are already light. Present tense. Yes, and then that's what happens in twelve. If it exposed, then it it becomes. Light, everything is exposed, is false, is light. So actually you are doing a service to your brothers and sisters by saying, rebuking them, because then they can see the darkness for what it is, and then they're more fully transformed into light. So it's a very communal, very practical, even though it's a very poetic passage, it's actually really practical. Well, that's a great note to pause and come back and explore some sermon starters. we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Amy Peeler, and we are looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. Uh, this is a epistle lesson suggested for, I think it's the fourth Sunday of Lent, which you will actually be preaching on this text. So let's explore some sermon stars. What direction you want to go? I can mention some of the other texts that'll be on, and probably why this got selected is there's been readings, the gospel readings are all from John. It's a series of four readings of, and most of them are highly dialogical. So the Nicodemus conversation, the Samaritan woman, the week after this will be the Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So this would be the the third in that sequence, but the fourth week of Lent. And it's the John nine, the, yes. the healing of the blind man and that dialogue with the Pharisees at the end, the light has come, doesn't judge you directly. It kind of judges you by shining lights. So I'm my hunch is the, the lectionary folks picked this because it kind of goes with that gospel a little bit. So uh, you don't have to do anything with that. If you want to, though, feel free. I just thought I'd throw that out there as an initial connection, that, that that's probably why this text is being assigned. But of course, you can do whatever you want with the text. But where where do you feel like you'd be going? I mean, obviously, we've already said some things, but what would be the heart or direction or focus as you continue to develop your sermon and then anyone who's listening in, how how they might be going to? You know, our church has chosen for this season to focus on the epistle. So we definitely are reading the gospel and the Old Testament, but this really is going to be center stage. I think, I I don't know exactly how I would get in, but I do think this speaks to an issue that contemporary Christians find confusing. When is it right to, you know, call a friend to the carpet for something that they are living in a way that's damaging to them. And I think the fear of doing so is very loud voices uh, featured on media or whatever. 
that like to kind of point a judgmental finger at lots of Christians or people who are not Christians. And I think that, I think a healthy desire not to be annoying or act like you are perfect and have it all together has almost pushes people to the opposite place of, oh, I would never say anything to anyone about works of darkness that aren't helpful. So I think that would actually, that takes a lot of wisdom to know, and then a lot of bravery if you feel a conviction to speak into. So I feel that that is truly a live discipleship question that people wrestle with, but how to appropriately get into that through this text, I'd need a little bit more reflection. Do you think I've named something that people wrestle with? Absolutely. In terms of the struggle that we live in, when to not, and they're both in here, right? You've got the the talking about shameful things versus the rebuking it, speaking against it properly, and how to juggle those two sides. And the fact that the text is a little weird at first is kind of nice. It kind of like actually almost validates our difficulty, yes. you know, in juggling those things. And I wonder, th- this isn't a way in, well, it may be a way in whether it's how a sermon would start is another matter, but I wonder if verse 10 is helpful back to that testing. They're going to say, because I think some of us will get into kind of, we'll get in analysis paralysis mode, we get stuck. Should I say something or not? And then of course, the downside of that kind of thinking, I got, there's going to be the right time to do it. And then if I get the right time, the downside is then if I do actually rebuke, I'm coming in guns blazing because I know God told me to tell you, blah, blah, blah. What if whether you say something or not is all itself in that mode of testing Mm. and and leaning in with that, like, hey, I kind of want to bring this up and actually testing. Does it actually result in goodness, righteousness, and truth? Because, I mean, we all have seen moments when a rebuke, I'm going to stick with that term, whether we use that term in the sermons, another matter, but I can think of times when rebuking helped and I can think of times when it didn't. And to actually reflect on what are the patterns Hmm. and there might need to be in the sermon some some, like you said, some wisdom tradition where you're not just expositing the text, but just kind of saying, Hey, here's some patterns I've noticed three or four things. When these are, when these are there, it tends to actually result. But the question is not how I feel after the rebuke, right? <laughs> which is usually yeah. how I test it. Cause I usually yeah. feel icky after the rebuke. And then a week later, there's some justice, righteousness or goodness that came out of it. So whether I feel icky or not is not the final. Oh, that's or good. even the primary factor. Yes. So that might be something that might inform it. That testing language from earlier might give us the posture with which we rebuke. So it's always trial and error, you know? And then it doesn't feel like such a heavy ask, like go and confront someone. You could kind of take a foray into the arena and more a posture of, like a asking of questions rather than coming in guns blazing. Um, yeah, test out to see if, you know, introducing a topic bears fruit. That's really helpful. I think, you know, the, ch- the head of this passage, the, the beginning of the chapter, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself as an offering and sacrifice for our sins. In my parish, we quote that pretty much every week before we enter into Eucharist. So it might be, a nice reminder for the congregation, hey, we're right in this place where we say these words and how in this act of rebuke or exposure coming into the light, is that a demonstration of Christ-like love? Yeah, and linked to that, even the verse prior, right? Therefore, become imitators of God. 
Yes. As beloved children. Yeah. So then asking a little bit, how does God rebuke? How does Christ rebuke? Because there is exposure that God in Christ engages in, but it's often indirect. It's often in a way that respects. And I mean, he has his moment where he says, okay, you got to wipe the dust off your feet or woe to those cities. But even the woe to those cities and the woe to those Pharisees, that all comes always a little bit later in the gospel after he's attempt, you know, it's, he says, woe to the Pharisees after, you know, in Matthew where that is, right. Is that in what? 24, 25, 22, somewhere near 23, 23. There it is. <laughs> Matthew 23 these are the woes to the Pharisees, but that's after spending the whole book dialoguing and debating with the Pharisees, trying to engage. Right. Right. So what does it look like to, to challenge, to rebuke, to expose? I think there, there is a way to do that. That's Christ-like. That's a divine and apparently necessary, although always subordinate. It's not the main part of the passage. It's subordinate to testing that in your own self and walking as children of light. Exactly. And I think the the act of humbly and with with bravery rebuking someone else, one has to be open to, you might discover that this plank in someone else's eye actually exposes a log in your own. It could be that this person you're rebuking actually then will have something and say, well, I think you're missing something in yourself. One always needs to be prepared for that to ricochet back. And that's actually a good thing because anything that's exposed becomes light. I'm imagining situations in which people by deep conviction see the world differently. And even if we could have a conversation over difference, that would be amazing. But that means we might need to be exposed to ways in which our ideological commitments are lacking in ways that we didn't know. Any light that's cast is worth it, even if it's me actually having to come around and discern yeah. what's actually pleasing to God. Because I came into the conversation uh, with this assumption about what pleases God. Yeah, because there's, there's a number of layers. There's just the uh, we're not wanting to judge people. Mm. And then there's that extra layer of... Am I bringing in a whole bunch of false assumptions, you know, my own, what I don't even realize are secular and pagan ideas that are over-determining my sense of what it is that pleases God? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Awake, oh sleeper. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's it's a call to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, that encouragement at the beginning, but he's writing to a Christian community. We're preaching to those who have largely claimed Christ, right? There could always be listeners who have not made, you know, that relationship, but you are in the Lord and you are light. And so it's not a, you have to find this new thing, but this is true of you. It just needs the kind of unraveling in your life, just like sleep. Normally, when you wake up from sleep, it's not like you jump up and you're totally ready. There's a transition period, (laughs) more so for some than others, but you need to kind of let the grogginess go. And that takes time. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's our way in, in terms of just, uh, possible imagery uh, or illustrations, you know, to talk a little bit about waking up. And what it's like waking up in the winter when it's still dark and you got to drive your kids to school in the dark and you're like, ah. Yeah, and recognize the Christian life actually has a lot in common with that, that unfolding, right? There is this, we have been raised, we have been awakened, the light has dawned, and yet we still got a lot of bumbling 
mm-hmm. you know, along a lot of testing. And we're still in some sense waiting for, you know, Christ to shine upon us. Right. Cause that isn't, that isn't a future tense. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I'm thinking you'd mentioned kind of the eschatological, like what happens at the end, but the future tense could also be, this will continue to happen. He will continue to shine spaces that, and isn't that kind of the process of Lent, right? The, the, the exposure of darkness within ourselves that we didn't quite know was there, but we take these weeks to ask God to shine the light in spaces that had been hidden. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Amy. I had a blast interpreting scripture with you today. I always do. It is such a gift. I'm like ready to go now. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And I hope your listeners feel that as well. <sighs> yeah, well, I'll let you take off. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Excellent. All right. Have a great day. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing the show without you. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And thanks to uh, all our supporters. If you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find ways that you can become a patron saint. So with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>